Hi, everyone. Welcome back to a new episode of Africa's a Country Talk. I'm Will Shockey, streaming from Johannesburg, South Africa. And I'm joined, as always, by my wonderful co-presenter, Sean Jacobs, who's in Brooklyn, New York. And by the way, it was Sean's birthday on Sunday. So if you'd like, send him a nice little message on the chat function. He's, he's sporting a new birthday jacket today. I think it looks pretty, pretty cool, pretty steezy. Uh, so happy birthday, Sean, from me. And what you're watching at the moment is AIAC Talk, which is a weekly interview show. We broadcast every Tuesday at 7 p.m. if you're in Nairobi, 5 p.m. in Dakar, or 6 p.m. in Johannesburg. And our show is produced, as always, by Antoinette Engel, who's in Cape Town, South Africa. And this is episode 33. Thank you very much, Will, and thank you for the birthday. Are they saying Cape Town the birthday, the birthday wishes <laughs> on today's show? We discuss whether, and this is like a big topic, an important topic, whether the moment is right for South Africa's left to form a new party, or as I say in South Africa, party, par party. I say party because <laughs> uh, Niall Reddy, who's a South African and a doctoral student in sociology at the New York University, and he wrote an article on Africa as a country that uh, earlier this week, um, and that article is the basis for today's discussion. Secondly, Tasneem Esop, a researcher at the Society Work and Politics Institute, or SWOP, at the University of Advertisement in Johannesburg. And Mazibuko Jara, an activist, trainer, and popular educator, and a former national spokesperson of the South African Communist Party, who also serves on the Amandla uh, Collective. But if you missed our show last week, it was a great episode. We explored the intellectual activism of Archie Mafeje and Cedric Robinson, two scholars and activists who are both now late, whose efforts to challenge Eurocentrism and political thought are becoming more widely known. And our guests for that were Bongani Nyoka, who has written two books on Mafeje, as well as Joshua Myers, whose new book on Cedric Robinson just came out. And clips from that episode are available on our YouTube channel. But as usual, best check out the whole thing on our Patreon, along with all the episodes from our archive. In a few minutes, we're going to welcome our first guest. But Sean, I wanted to first ask you, what's been on your mind this week? I mean, with me, I, I, mine is, I think you, you're going to talk about something really heavy, but um, for me, just quickly, I'll be quick. I wanted to, I, I'm kind of noticing that Fela Kuti is uh, in line for the, uh, something musical for me, in line for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is a strange thing, and you can Google it and read about it. It was uh, started, it's an American thing, just let me make that clear. <laughs> Fela doesn't need uh, any validation. But the American market is the biggest market. It sets, you know, if you it's, you can be big in Poland, then you're still not big if you're not big in America. <laughs> Ask Trevor Noah. In any case, um, in 1986, they founded this thing, um, and uh, it's based. They built they built like a building in Ohio where they have this event in Cleveland. In the first class, they had like Chuck Berry uh, and a whole bunch of other American musicians. The first black woman actually was the next year, Aretha Franklin. And so Fela Kuti currently, the way it works is like they have a kind of vote where these anonymous voters that we don't know, I think it's about six or 700 of them. And then it is uh, a fan vote, which they combine and the top five fan vote getters, they are added to the, to the vote by the members of this hall of fame, which by the way, started out with Rolling Stone magazine, but we don't have all the details. I don't want to go into too much detail. The point that I just find interesting is if Fela makes it, it I, I was amazed he would actually be the first African 
um, to be inducted into, I mean, I'm not saying people of African descent in general, there's been lots of African-American artists. I think Bob Marley may be in there too from the Caribbean, but um, he would probably be the first artist who was born and kind of lived most of his productive life and work life on the African continent. The chances are good. He's currently second in the fan vote, but I don't know who the 600 people are voting for. Uh, is they voting um, for, for Fela? So there's a lot of debates online. It's an American thing. Why does Fela need it? He's not a rock musician. Um, you know, rock is rock can be, it's a very expansive definition. And then finally, there's some people talking about how he's being sanitized. The thing about Fela is, if you're going to judge Fela on his public life, it's very contradictory. There's progressive elements, reactionary elements to it. He was male chauvinist, etc. Um, then there's, but at the same time, he's he's also like a prolific musician and very, and, and he made a genre. And I think it, it would be interesting if he doesn't make it, if he doesn't make it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. So that's just my item for the week, very light. It's very, very nice and light and already showing us the, some of the politics of voting that we're going to properly get into in a little bit. Um, but I, I do hope he does well. I think it would be a, a really cool thing, even if just symbolic and ultimately meaningless. I think it would still be simply pretty nice. But um, to talk about, you know, what's been, what's been on my mind this week, uh, it's been a pretty, I think, heavy last couple of days um, in terms of just the amount of of death that we've been witnessing, I mean, throughout the whole pandemic, but I think in a concentrated period, the last four days have been really intense. And I think if you're a music lover, uh, we were just talking about music, um, Friday would have been pretty hard for you because um, a musical icon for me and for many people, American rapper DMX passed away. Um, and, you know, DMX was just this touchstone of, of rap music because he was, he was really a kind of blues musician uh, in, in rap music. His lyricism persona rooted in this kind of existentialist posture, which, you know, we can have a whole conversation about DMX and, and what he meant for the culture. But I think he was, his, his artistry was really a turning point for, for the genre. And he, he passed away uh, in an untimely fashion. He was only 50 years old. Um, and then, you know, yesterday, a South African writer, Pumlani Pikoli, passed away. We've spoken about some of his work on the show before. He wrote that book, Born Freeloaders, which is a sort of critique of South Africa's young black middle class. Um, and and on Sunday, Dr. Cindy Fansale, who's affectionately known by South Africans as the people's doctor, passed away. And um, I think what was noteworthy about her passing is that a week before there was a crowdfunding campaign that had been put together to try and help raise funds to cover her medical bill because she had been hospitalized since the start of the year having contracted COVID and due to persistent breathing problems needed to be kept on a ventilator. And this campaign was started, uh, 2 million Rand was required to settle the medical bill Half of that was raised, and then she unfortunately passed away. And I think what it sort of just, I, I think, underscores, which is a message that everyone preaches about what this virus is supposed to make clear for all of us, but sometimes doesn't really sink in all the time, uh, is just the nature of how fragile we are as human beings. But 
also how fragile people are no matter what their station in life is in terms of access to healthcare. Uh, I think in, in South Africa, it's interesting because I think when the crowdfunding campaign was started for, for Dr. Cindy, I think a lot of people, some people reacted skeptically and were wondering, well, why do they need to go to a private hospital? What's wrong with going to a public South African hospital? Um, because the nature of private healthcare in South Africa is that as a for-profit system, it is incredibly exorbitant. Um, but I think it just, it just goes to show how the way capitalism structures our lives is that it places these impersonal pressures on all people to try and strive for commoditized services. Um, and it's designed to diminish confidence in the state provision of services and to compel people to believe that you'll get better healthcare, better transportation, better schooling if you go for the private and marketized options. So naturally people go to extreme lengths to try and access those services. But in many instances, no matter what their class position, those are still extremely expensive and have extreme barriers to entry. And someone like Dr. Cindy, who'd spent so much of her life trying to extend her own expertise, extend her own services to people free of charge, was now in a position where when she needed help, she didn't have a safe quality resource in order to access that. So I think I'm increasingly becoming convinced that as South Africans, as we make the demands for universal healthcare, for example, it also needs to be universal healthcare, not just to provide provision for the people that need it most, but healthcare that undercuts the power of the private sector, that demarketizes access to healthcare, and that creates a system where people can trust that no matter what station in life they're in, they can access the vital things that they need in order to survive. So I think there's a lot of work to do, but I also think that there's a lot of people that the left in South Africa can reach in terms of the demands that it makes upon the state and the demands that it makes upon capital. So on that note, having spoken about the left, um, remember to hit like and subscribe as well as follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please, please, please subscribe to our Patreon where you can access all of the show's episodes and help fund Africa as a country in general. And we are about to talk about the left on today's program. And we want to ask the question about whether or not South Africa's left needs a new party. We take our cue from an article that one of our guests, Nal Reddy, who is a South African sociologist and graduate student at New York University, and he's writing his dissertation there. And what he recently wrote for Africa as a country was a post making the case for South Africa's left to start a new party. And it's important to mention that that post, by the way, is part of the inaugural series of republications that Africa as a country has began with the South African left publication, Amandla. So Niall, we're really excited to have you on the show. Um, we're really excited to to talk about, um, about today's topic. Is, is Niall around? Ah, oh, there he is. <laughs> thanks will thanks sean thanks for having me yeah um you open your your post by by making the observation that in the last 10 years there's been this global 
transition towards electoral politics and you you use Panajin Ginding's phrasing, which they term as a shift from protest to politics. So first, as, as, a, as an introductory question, how widespread is that transition? Um, can you quantify it? Is, is it adequate? Is it something that is worth celebrating or is it not enough? How, how widespread is it globally, do you mean? Yeah. Yeah, how widespread is it globally, yeah. Well, I mean, I'd have a hard time quantifying it. I guess we could, we could try to add up all the countries in which this has happened. Um, I mean, I think what's clear enough is that, is, that, is that it's a pronounced enough trend to make the claim that there's some pretty historic shift that's occurred within the left globally. Uh, I think we'll all be familiar with the more uh, famous examples within this trend. Um, it's Bernie Sanders in the US, it's Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, it's Podemos in Spain, it is uh, where it, it was uh, the left movement, which is name I'm blanking on in Greece. Um, the, the reference points uh, that I was drawing on were primarily within um, northern capitalist countries, advanced capitalist countries for these essays. And that is uh, partly biographical is because I've been for the last five years active um, in politics in the US with the Democratic Socialists of America. And so a lot of my reference points come from that and a lot of my intellectual reference points come from the debate that's emerged around this new left in Western countries. But if we were to just <clears throat> extend our, our range geographically, but also um, chronologically, so we look back, not, not necessarily in the last decade, but just before that, then we also have the pink tide in South America, where you've also had emergence of an entirely new left over there. And I think another place that holds uh, enormous lessons for South Africa. I didn't make that my reference point because I'm less, I have less expertise um, on that question. Um, but I think there, there are many points, many parts of the world where, which the South African left can look to, to try to glean um, some kind of, you know, um, uh, lessons, so to try to, try to um, take some kind of inspiration. Because I think there are other movements around the world that have been a lot more successful than what we've been, even given the arguably difficult circumstances in which we've been working. So in, in your article, you then you sort of sketch it from that kind of broader context and then bring it to South Africa. Can you can you just and I know this it could be a dissertation, but where do you see where do you see that 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 description of what you describe as from protest to politics? Like, how does that play out in South Africa? Well, I mean, the trouble is that it didn't really play out in South Africa. And this is kind of what um, this is almost a jumping off point for the essay, is that I, it, it felt like around a decade ago when uh, what we've come to call the NUMSA moment was arriving in South Africa, it felt like we were on the verge of that transition occurring over here, um, at least for a certain segment of the left. I mean, we have to remember that there's, in South Africa, there's kind of two lefts. There's what we sometimes call the official left. That's the left that's broadly within the tripartite alliance um, aligned to the ruling African National Congress. So that's the South African National Communist, South African Communist Party and the uh, major trade union federation, COSATU. And then there's what we call the independent left, which was the left outside of the alliance. Um, and that left had been based uh, for more or less the entire post-apartheid period, uh, more or less exclusively in social movements of, of various kinds. And that's where this movementist ideology that I talk about in the essay had taken root. And what appeared to be happening in, in 2012 was that um, movementism was coming to an end. 
And that sector of the left was starting to become a little bit more ambitious. They were starting to see that with Numsa's breakaway from the ANC, which many people thought would presage a bigger uh, fracturing of the coalition around the ANC of the tripartite alliance, that the conditions were now ripening for a, a more ambitious form of politics, which would, have in, which would have involved forming a new political party and being much more serious about trying to contest for state power rather than just trying to mobilize on the streets and try to and try to foment agitation against the state, to actually try to form a political vehicle um, that could run in elections, that could uh, contest within the parliamentary system that we have. So that was, the, that was what, it, it seemed like there was a shift in orientation. We were waking up to this, um, to new prospects on the left, but unfortunately that's all kind of collapsed and it collapsed because that whole process around the NUMSA movement ultimately failed because it, it, um, there were two things that came out of it. One was a united front, which I think was the right move. This was a, an effort to try to stitch together as many left forces as we could, social movements with unions that were becoming more independent from the ANC with small political parties. And then, and then that was the thing that was supposed to then lead to the new political party. But instead what you happened was, what happened was an effort to try and, um, not even superimpose, but to try to, um, start this new political party in a very vanguardist SACP 2.0 mold in a way that totally subverted the United Front. And in fact, that leaders of that party came to see the United Front, I think, as effectively a hostile force, a threat to their, to their political supremacy. And then it created this just very defunct, ineffective political party um, that I think had the effect of um, disabusing people of any hope that they'd come to um that, that they'd come to about the prospects for a political party because this party was has ended up being so such a failure that people then went back to thinking that the that the things they'd believed during that era of movementism that political parties are not an effective vehicle that they can only be effective in very specific circumstances was actually the right orientation that we should be skeptical about parties and we should go back to just trying to build movements and hope that at some stage things change and a different party becomes possible. And so that's what I was trying to, to um, inveigh against. So the party that was created uh, at the tail end of that moment uh, was the Socialist Revolutionary Workers' Party. And you're scathing in the essay and you call them comical. And you've already touched on some of the elements which made it operate in a way that was not conducive to aligning different forces and, and tendencies. Could you could you say more about what made it so much of a failure? What was its electoral campaign at the time when it launched? Uh, what was the, the buildup to its launch? And how was it just so spectacularly a flop that it had this effect of demoralizing left forces across the board? Yeah, so maybe I'll focus on two things that, that's wrong with this party. One is a um, hewing to this insurrectionist model of politics in a completely thoughtless and uncritical way. In the essay, I think I said it's the appropriation of a Bolshevik ideology because it's, it's literally, you know, it, it's essentially saying that there's nothing that the left has to rethink 100 odd years after the Bolshevik revolution. We can take everything that we have to do word for word out of various textbooks that Lenin wrote. And so what it meant is that it offers a political program that is completely unsuited to the conditions of a 
mostly industrialized liberal democracy like the one that we're operating in. And in particular, what it fails to account for, the same thing that unfortunately Leninists have failed to account for for 100 years of politics is the enormous legitimacy of the state in established liberal democracies like ours. The fact that most workers just aren't interested in, in revolution and can't really imagine revolution in the way that this, that this party is proclaiming. And so it meant that it's offering up a program to people that was just alienating, that people could not understand, that just had no resonance. And so it, it ran in elections, but it did so on this um, platform, the basis of which was basically saying that these elections are a joke, that you shouldn't be thinking about elections, that actually what we need is a working class revolution. You know, the implicit assumption is that somehow the state's going to crumble tomorrow and that this is the vanguard party that's going to somehow establish a parallel state and set up Soviets or whatever. And it's just, it is something that, you know, totally detached from the live reality of most people in the country. And so it just had no traction. Uh, the program was totally just inappropriate for the conditions that we're working in. The second thing is that it was fundamentally undemocratic. It reprised this vanguardist model um, in what well, reprised all the worst aspects of it, um, in that it, you know, anointed a certain leadership it didn't set up any structures to try to hold that leadership accountable. It didn't do anything to try to increase the participation of its rank and file. It started then to even create a personality cult around this leadership. And then, you know, one of the big um, errors that we made, I think, in this whole NUMSA process is that uh, when it was occurring, I think a lot of people on the left believed that it was a process that was been driven from the bottom up. We believed that what was happening here was essentially a rank and file rebellion within NUMSA, people breaking from the ANC and demanding a new polit political vehicle. And the trade union leadership was tailing that. In actual fact, I don't really think that's what was happening. For reasons that you know we can speculate about, we can get into if it is necessary, I think that the, the trade union leadership made its own decision to launch this political party. But the problem was that they ended up launching a political party that they were fundamentally in control of. So this was a, a political process that was entirely dependent on this layer of trade union bureaucrats. And I think that was the big mistake that we made. They made all sorts of radical noises. They appeared to be taking a new political direction. And that convinced a lot of us that we should put aside a lot of the misgivings that we've had about a trade union bureaucracy that in general has been an incredibly conservative force and assumed that this bureaucracy is different. And what I think has been revealed over the last 10 years is that it fundamentally wasn't. And I, I don't mean that to say that about all of them. We mustn't be mechanistic about our assumption about the trade union bureaucrats. A lot of the, a lot of the best comrades we have on the left and even a lot of people that led that process and were in NUMSA are genuine, committed, dedicated comrades. But certain others are not. And I think that includes uh, the leader, Irvin Jim. And there's now credible evidence that suggests that that leadership was guilty of the same forms of corruption that we've seen across South African trade unions that have been so devastating for the labor movement in South Africa. Um, but instead of suspending this leadership and investigating those claims and giving Irvin Jim and others their day in court, uh, what you've had is this closing of ranks around him, creation of a personality cult, pushing out dissidents, um, suspensions, all these kind of things. And so it's, you know, it's just an, another one of these. And, and this is almost a fundamental critique about it, because if it was a democratic party and we disagreed with its program, but it had a lot of energy around it, there might be an argument for saying we should go in and we should try to change the party. But it's not a democratic party. It's a party controlled by this clique of corrupt union bureaucrats. And it means that there's no real prospect for uh, transforming. We have to build something different. 
So just just on that, when you when you talk about kind of early on, you mentioned there's like the there's the kind of independent left, and then there's the sort of left that we associate with the Communist Party, with the ANC and Kusatu. Can you explain because there's Numsa the Nunsa conundrum? Apart from the corruption, it also it also exposed like this problem, which is you start these new political movements, but you underestimate the hold of the ANC, the SACP. Well, less the SACP, but I suppose the ANC is the leader of that and Kusatu over people's imaginations on the left. So regular people voting for the ANC and seeing the ANC as that model. Secondly, maybe as related to that, that space that Numsa didn't take then gets taken by the EFF. I'm curious to you from you, like one, what do you make of the ANC still electoral dominance? Because we cannot pretend that that's not happening. When it comes to elections, you said SRWP could barely get some votes. So the ANC did well. And then there's this other force that some people did. And I know people who joined it and assumed that that's going to be this new left party, which was the EFF. How do you, what do you, what are your views about what their projects are? So I think those are great points, Sean. And I, and I think, you know, the first thing you say is something that we on the so-called independent left need to just keep reminding of ourselves because I think we were just too, you know, facile in our, in our analysis of that. I think we started believing long ago that because the ANC was guilty of what we thought of as a betrayal, because it instituted a neoliberal regime when, it, when there were conditions for doing something a lot different, that that would mean very quickly that uh, workers would wake up to this betrayal that they would um, uh, that and and you know and that when that would immediately mean that you know we can operate as though the ANC is in a in a process of decline but the problem is that that just has not been the case the hegemony that the ANC wields over workers in South Africa is phenomenal the degree of party loyalty the tercile strength of party loyalty with the ANC is incredible and to be honest, we should have done better to have looked at the historical record on these things, to have been more sensitive for, for what that meant and how difficult that was going to make our political challenge. Because it's not, it's not entirely unique, the degree of loyalty that the ANC commands over workers, even whilst essentially screwing them over in material terms. There are numerous other historical settings in which socialists have faced a similar conundrum to this, of, tr of trying to you know, um, trying to dislodge workers from a from a political party that commands immense loyalty, but that is not serving their interests. And I don't think we were ever sensitive enough to that. And I think, you know, it's part of the, and, and in fact, this one has fed into a lot of the worst tendencies within movementism, because one of the problems with movementism was that we saw all of the new, the new social movements that emerged as anti-ANC vehicles. And this was encouraged by a lot of their intellectual, you know, uh, gatekeepers, that they were portraying them as, as vehicles in which anybody involved in this movement, because they had been, they had had the benefit of having this been this personal engagement in this process of struggle, they immediately saw, saw through the contradictions, not just of capitalism, but of the ANC. And so this was the seedbed of a new party emerging outside of the ANC, but it was just never the case. And it was a problem fundamentally, I think is one of the reasons why these movements turned out to be so weak is that they never managed to challenge the loyalty that most of their own members even had, let alone the community that they operated in towards the ANC. And it set them up for 
co-optation and demobilization and all the sorts of games that the ANC um, was able to play with them. So I don't think we've ever taken seriously what it really meant to confront the deep loyalty that the working class in South Africa has to the ANC. And so one of the other things that it led to was we never, we never sought out the potential avenues that we had to try and build coalitions with whatever left factions existed within the ANC. We were the independent left. We were the ones with the right pure socialist agenda. Eventually, the workers would see that, and they would leave the ANC on their own terms. And uh, that was a mistake. And so it's one of the things that we have to do entirely differently moving forward, is we have to constantly be trying to build connections with, reach out to um, um, the left within the ANC. And we have, to, we have to understand that the only way we really advance is when there's a decomposition of that coalition when workers finally do break with the ANC. And we have to take, you know, also seriously um, that there are going to be some committed socialists that saw, that actually realized this in a way that we didn't realize and that saw, that saw, uh, that therefore understood that it made sense in a certain way to be trying to work within the ANC, to try and build the left with the ANC. And we should see these people as natural allies. So, so that's an answer to, related to that very quickly, if you don't mind me, it's, it's a, uh, question that Shireen Hasim, who's a friend of the show and has appeared before, uh, she she asks if we can define the left because uh, she says the SACB hasn't been on the left for a long time. We're talking that there are some factions in these formations which are still on the left. Uh, and there's another question uh, to bring back something Sean was mentioning earlier about whether or not the economic freedom fighters is on the left. So, I mean, it might be helpful, especially in South African political discourse, where I think that a lot of these terms have become muddied and the, the political spectrum scrambled to, to understand what does it mean to be on the left at this conjuncture? Yeah, and I guess that's a complicated question when it comes to South Africa, because, you know, often when we're trying to place a particular political formation on a political spectrum, we have to deal with the common disjuncture that exists between the ostensible ideology of these movements and their objective character. So you take the EFF, for example, the ostensible ideology is clearly a left-wing one. It's Marxist phenomenalism, whatever, changes by the week. It's clearly shifted in a much more overtly nationalist direction, but I think it's still fair to say that it's mostly um, an ideology whose reference points are, are left-wing. But objectively, is this a left-wing movement? Uh, then also, the, you know, then it becomes it depends. What exactly do you mean? If this was a, if you mean by what would the EFF achieve if it came to power? Then no, because again, it's anti-democratic and it's corrupt and it's led by people who are, you know, embedded in this state party machine, tenderpreneurs, people who are live off the state. And so, if it came to power, what would it do? It would enrich those people, and I don't think it would benefit workers. So objectively, it's not left. But then on the other hand, what's the composition of the party? Well, it's organizing a whole bunch of working class people of the broad working class on the basis of a left-wing ideology. And that surely is not irrelevant to how we characterize this uh, movement. And there's a lot of people who say, well, the EFF is middle class. That's rubbish. As far as I can see, it's, it has, its support base is more or less the same comp class composition as the ANC. It's large chunk of unemployed people, small chunk of formerly workers, but mostly very low income working class people who are in the EFF. So, I mean, that's a, it's, 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 I don't think it's a straightforward answer to the question. I guess it depends on your usage over here. Um, I'm in favor in a lot of these debates, 
in or in a lot of you know what we're discussing now in in adopting a more inclusive terminology precisely because i think that we can't afford to write these movements off in the same way that we can't afford to write the SACP off as not being as as not being part of the left in fact all of what i was just saying about the strategic error that we've made for so long on the independent left of not uh recognizing the necessity of having to try to cultivate and work with left um currents within the alliance comes from that tendency to not see the SACP as left why because it's in a lines with the bourgeois party and so objectively it's it's bourgeois but it's mobilizing and organizing a whole bunch of people on the basis of a marxist ideology how can we not see this as left and so this is why i'm i'm a little bit uh wary of some of these efforts and in the most extreme form they come from some people on the left who want to tell you that the EFF is fascist but what's the strategic upshot of calling it fascist fascists are people that we fight with on the street with bricks and bats are we suggesting that's what we should do with the EFF? Absolutely not. I think we need to try to connect with the base of the EFF and try to understand that you know the leadership might be doing its own thing, but most of the people who are in the EFF are there because they think this party is going to transform society in the way that progressives say it ought to be transformed and we just need to convince them that this is not the organizational vehicle to do that, but we're on the same side ultimately. You're on mute, Sean. It's always me with the mute. It's always me with the mute. I just wanted to, so just on, on this question of what is the left? And I, for example, and where are the possibilities for the left? And I like your, I like your comment at the end there about it, be, it having to be inclusive moving forward. So when you trace the, the new, new left in South Africa, you highlighted in the, in the, in the post, you highlight the anti-privatization forum, which for people who don't know was a movement kind of the early 2000s, right? Mostly in Johannesburg. Was that just as an example or was that placing deliberate? And I'm asking that because I wanted to know in terms of sort of extra parliamentary movements in South Africa, which of these movements do you see inside this kind of politics that you see developing and which not? So one example I was thinking when I was reading you is the one movement that did become a national movement in terms of its appeal, its achievements, that it, it was the treatment action campaign, it did get the government to change its mind, its policy on providing people with access to, to AIDS drugs, like the public, you know, the public health service had to provide that. Um, can, you, can you respond to that, like this question of like, in, outside, outside in extra parliamentary movements, where, where can you see these kind of interesting developments around the left? And just a little bit, if you go back to the early 2000s, which of those movements do you see one can build on. Okay, so firstly, I should say there was no intention to pick on the anti-privatization forum. I actually just put that in there because your co-host, when he was editing the article, <laughs> told me I needed an example, and that was the first one that, uh, that came to mind. Um, so in terms of which of these, so one thing I should also just clarify, because I realize that this has been a misinterpretation in some of the feedback that I've gotten from the essay, is that what I'm articulating here, and I, and I hope this was actually clear in what I wrote, is not an anti-movement agenda. I'm not suggesting that movements are bad or that we should abandon movements. I, I think it's absolutely right that the orientation of a large part of the left has been trying to build coalitions between movements and labor unions, and I think that's exactly what we should continue to do. What, what I was suggesting is that, or what I was arguing against, is the strategic orientation that has failed, I think, to have a realistic 
uh, appraisal of what the strengths and potentials of this movement are, um, firstly. And then secondly, what I was arguing for was that wherever we have the capacity to do so, we should change our prioritization away from movements towards uh, labor unions. And, um, and I'll, we can go into the reasons for that, but ultimately it's, it's the basis for that is just the fact that these movements have turned out to be a lot weaker than, than, um, than we've imagined. There are, you know, um, there are uh, exceptions to that. And treatment action campaign might be a good example because here was a movement that uh, won a clear and astounding victory. Um, the treatment action campaign, one could argue, is responsible for having saved hundreds of thousands of lives maybe more, for the role that it played in reversing the government's stance on this issue. But I think it's a very different thing if we're going to judge social movements from the point of view of their capacity to win specific issues, and if we're going to judge them from the point of view of being able to form the basis for mass socialist politics. And, and this is one of the difficulties that I think, you know, you see most clearly in the case of the treatment action campaign, in that one of the consequences of the enormous victory that it won was, in essence, a movement away, I think, from its social movement character. So the treatment action campaign became the movement that became a, a kind of standard for a new model that ultimately was no longer social movements, but it was kind of blending social movements with NGOs. And all of this then um, yoked to a legal strategy. So the kind of focus in the end became um, this, it's a kind of inside-outside strategy of a different kind, but the inside in this case refers to lawyers trying to win things through our very progressive constitutional system in the country backed up by street level mobilization. That was the formula that won this amazing victory for the treatment action campaign. And then there was an effort to generalize this formula to a whole bunch of different movements. So you had a, a nexus of movements springing up around the treatment action campaign, the social justice coalition, equal education being the key ones in this. SJC was where I got my political start. Um, the problem was that this, this formula didn't really carry so well as it did in that one instance. So you had, you know, uh, small victories, I think, won by these movements, certain legal battles. But what's emerged from it is that there are serious limitations in the, in the um, ability to essentially legislate or to, you know, to legislate the state into doing the things that we want, to, to win legal battles and hope that the, somehow the constitutional court will force it to deliver the social policies that we need. That happened to work well in this one instance for very specific reasons, but broadly beyond that, whatever they won cases, I don't think it really fundamentally shifted, um, uh, it, it shifted things substantively. I don't know how much it actually changed state policy. And then the second consequence was it, of this was that these movements became heavily NGO-ified because, and, it, and I think it was in a lot of ways linked to the strategy, which put a lot of emphasis on lawyers. And then it, you know, you dealt with the same contradictions that happens when you NGOify movements, which is that, however much you might be able to erect certain democratic structures and find ways of trying to create participation at the base of these movements, fundamentally, you hand control over them to people who are the ones who, who um, interface with the funders, and who are able to operate in this kind of legalistic world that these movements operated in. And so my experience with them is that. 
they're wonderful movements and they've achieved great things and have politicized certain people in great ways, but they fundamentally have not fit in to uh, coalescence of socialism. They, they fundamentally have not formed part of a bigger ecosystem of movements that could have led to a mass-based socialist politics. And that was the limitation of them. So they became successful as one-off instances, but they didn't become successful as movements that you could see as a platform for building socialist politics, essentially. So Niall said a lot, and I think it's the appropriate time to bring on our other guests. So we would like to now welcome onto the show Tasneem Isop and Mazipo Kojara. Tasneem is a researcher at the Society Work and Politics Institute at the University of the Vatvatisrand in Johannesburg, and Mazibuko is an activist, trainer, and popular educator, and a former national spokesperson of the South African Communist Party, and he also serves on the Amandla Editorial Collective. So to the two of you, uh, Tasneem and Mazibuko, uh, We've lost He'll be back. He'll be back, hopefully. He'll be back. He'll be back. Um, and, and we're grateful to the both of you for joining us. Hopefully, Tasneem can be back with us shortly. Uh, so I think by way of a, of a first question, which we'll give Tasneem to answer later as well, is um, what do you make of Niall's argument? It's, it's provocative. It's, it's starting a lot of debate and conversation. And uh, Mazibuko, what, what's your... What's your What's your take on, on what Niles had to say so far? Uh, there's nothing much to disagree with in what Niall has put forward. Uh, he's absolutely correct that we need uh, a clear left political pole uh, that's mass-based, uh, that's got effective strategy, that's campaigning, that's organizing, uh, and that's also posing the question of political power. Uh, and the program for, 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 for socialism in South Africa. There's no doubt about the need for that. Uh, that's crucial. Uh, but what he has not said enough of is what I refer to as a broader left web of life, uh, where the party uh, is part of a multi-pillar mm -hmm. strategy uh, to build a, a working class power, to build socialist perspectives. Uh, so, for example, uh, if I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not surprised why uh, people misinterpret him to think he's against movements. I think uh, there's still a need and, and, and an importance of rebuilding mass movements to address the kind of weaknesses he's putting forward, particularly uh, the question of uh, what analysis uh, do these movements have of the problems they face, what strategy and how do they connect their strategy uh, to, to a broader set of politics. You can win uh, access to ARV drugs for HIV positive people, but the public health system is collapsing, but the budget remains uh, committed to an austerity path. So how, how then do socialists uh, find a way uh, to work in the TAC to bring that kind of political perspective uh, to bear to the kind of strategy the TAC follows? Uh, so, so I think uh, in my view, then the, the argument, the strategy of 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 of, of building a mass-based left party has to also concern itself in a very serious way with the rebuilding of the mass movements. Uh, 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 very importantly, because ultimately, uh, it is uh, the emergence of a big layer of working-class activists uh, connected to real communities, connected to, to real issues of the working class, that can then give a mass traction. 
uh, to, to the idea of a left party. Uh, but then, uh, my fear though about uh, the discussion is right now in South Africa, um, you've got a quite entrenched antipathy to electoral politics. Uh, if you see the decline uh, of, 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 of voter participation, but also uh, there's a big question for, for a new left party that it will really have to face what difference Will it bring uh, that the SRWP, that the SACP, or even WASP uh, have not been able to bring to bear, or even the EFF? Because, by the way, the kind of activist base that this party would need has been captured by the EFF. So, how Niall acknowledges that and says you cannot dismiss it. I, I, I think that's important. Uh, but then let's take it further. How do you work and connect with that reality? Uh, because uh, once you pose that uh, identity of a left party, automatically people will seek to defend their EFF identity, their SACP identity. Whereas if uh, uh, the question is about broad left renewal, uh, that's, that says, let's, let, 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 let us end a pathway. Uh, that, that says the left is, is weak. Uh, there's not a, a mass presence of the left in the way required. Uh, in, in a way that also wins people's struggles. Uh, so, so for me, in, in, in that way, then you, 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 you it's a journey uh, through which uh, the, 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 still the massive numbers of people committed to socialism in South Africa can enter with confidence. So, so, so for me, I think yeah, those, 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 that's my response to, 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 to what Niall is putting forward. Mm -hmm. uh, Tasneem? Yeah, Ivan, sorry, I got cut off there. Um, so, I mean, just a, just a few things. I'm not yet sure that um, the left is in a position to be discussing the best vehicle for mass social change. Um, and I'm starting for, from a point of asking, um, you know, what is, the, what is the state of the left at the moment? And if, if we are where I am in, in my thinking about the left, um, I'm sort of thinking instead of, about a new left party, about a new left, right? Um, and I'm not sure yet that the question of a vehicle um, is is important to that, right? Um, uh, to that yet. So I mean, I think while there can be agreement that a a left party is ultimately, um, you know, something that should be worked towards, uh, I think we're at a we're at a point far before that. Um, in terms of uh, the left in South Africa, right? Um, and I'm I'm coming from a position that's really um, where I really want to make the point that if we don't, it, so I mean, there's various tendencies in the left um, and various uh, strands that we can talk about on the left in South Africa. But I think if there isn't a real um, effort to move away from uh, previous traditions, um, previous tendencies, previous repertoires, ideologies, whatever, however you want to cast that, um, that if there isn't an effort to move away from that broadly, um, that even another attempt at a left party um, that is, you know, grounded in um, democratic politics, or at least committed to democratic politics, um, I think another project like that will Will once again fall flat. Um, so I think there's a real need to to consider the kind of um, traditions that the left comes to, um, 
uh, uh, comes with. Um, and and that even goes to like what what style of politics do you use and so on. Um, so that's the the other thing I wanted to say. And then you know I suppose our discussion will continue quite a bit from here. Um, but I, I mean just on electoral politics, um, I think from what uh, Mazibuko was just saying around um, the kind of relationship that people have to electoral politics. That I think we need to take cognizance of the fact that it was mentioned earlier, the ANC is still the ruling party, but I mean, there's a lot of criticism that can be made around that as a simple point, just based on voter turnout and so on, right? But that people would rather sit at home and not vote than vote against the ANC, despite a number of options to the right and to the left um, that are presented, you know, that were presented in the last um, national election. So I think the point that Nile made earlier around um, really understanding that um, the importance that, you know, uh, Congress politics and the ANC still has for, for many people is, is important for me. So I'm, I mean, I think there, there are questions around electoral politics and I, I do wonder whether engaging in electoral politics, given um, the kind of things that are needed to engage in that uh, on that level, including massive amounts of funding um, amongst a range of other things, is where the left, given where it is at the moment in South Africa, should be putting its efforts and also taking into consideration the, the, the you know, changing, developing relationship that people have to elections um, and the fact that you know, there are more people who are sitting at home and not voting for or against ANC, I think is, is important for me to, to think about. So at this, at this stage, everyone does seem in favor of some kind of left renewal, but we're hesitant about waging into electoral politics too early because the state of the left just is objectively weak, as well as that most of the Africans are developing an antipathy towards elections. So Niall, I'm curious to hear from you, do you think that diminishes the arguments in favor of a party? Is a party still uh, a useful vehicle for a regeneration of the left? Or are we exposing ourselves to the risk that whatever we do start might fall as flat as the SRWP did? I, I do think that whatever issues that we see with the current electoral system does not yet justify a strategy that tries to go around that system. I think this is actually one of the lessons that we have to take away from recent episodes of left resurgence in different countries, electoral left resurgence in different countries around the world. Because in virtually everywhere, every place that we've seen this, what's preceded it was exactly the dynamic that Mazibuko is talking about, often and actually in, in much more extreme ways, of a, uh, what seemed to be a turning away from the electoral system by a very large number of particularly poor and working class people, just not turning up to vote because they, they saw the system as not really representing them. But I think the error that we made was that we confused disaffection with the system with repudiation of the system. So we assumed that the fact that people were not turning up to vote was an indication that they were no longer interested in the electoral arena as a space for doing politics. And I think what these movements recently have revealed to us is that absolutely was the wrong conclusion to draw. Because I think so much of what dr has driven that disaffection, this crisis in, in, in representation that we've seen around the world, is a sense that the dominant political parties do not represent their interests. 
but again, it would be a massive leap of faith on the left to believe that people are going to immediately move from that conclusion to the conclusion that we need an entirely different system that's going to suddenly somehow replace this. Instead, I think what we need is different parties operating within that system that can show that they're different from all these the existing parties that are so failed to represent people. And I think that is the challenge of the left, that we cannot assume that because people are not voting, that they're ready for some completely you know, extra parliamentary form of politics. The reason that they're not going to be is because that strategy just does not appear to be, and in fact, objectively, is not realistic to anybody. So the reason why we cannot afford to forego and to, to abandon the electoral arena is because it is the space where power happens, right? Until we somehow have a way of setting up an entirely different parallel state or whatever, politics happens through elections. And if the left is not in those elections, if the left is not trying to put its message across in the place where mainstream politics happens, we're going to get sidelined. But the other thing that's been revealed for, for, for to us, I think, by these recent movements is that operating in those spaces is not dangerous in the same way that so many people told us that it was. Because the, the argument from the uh, a, a section of the far left was that, you know, these are spaces of bourgeois politics, bourgeois politics can never de deliver things for anybody, and therefore you operate in those spaces, eventually you'll delegitimize yourself in the face of workers will come to realize that you're not actually on their side. And, and that's just uh, not what happens. And in fact, what we've seen in Corbyn and in Sanders and in so many other places is that class struggle can be infused into those spaces, right? You can build electoral campaigns that are campaigns that further and embolden class struggle, that bold, embolden the capacity of workers to organize, that don't just subject themselves to the protocols of, of bourgeois politics that manage to uh, portray themselves actively to people as parties that are challenging the system and use the energy that they're generating from that electoral process to embolden and to build struggles, right? This is what we call class struggle elections, that they don't confine themselves to the electoral arena. They try to set up this synergistic process where simultaneously they're also strengthening movements. Matiboko raises a, a, a different challenge. Sorry, is that, do you want to move on? Yeah, I just wanted to ask on that, which is this idea of class struggle elections. And the two the two examples you cited were Corbyn and, and Sanders. And I think to to cue in uh, Mazbuka and Tasneem for further comments, the Corbyn moment and the Sanders moment uh, in the North Atlantic has somewhat failed, or at least maybe it's too early to say that uh, it's failed, but it's lost a lot of the momentum that it was able to generate because the election cycles within which a lot of that energy sprang up has passed. And now there is a different government in Downing Street. It's not Jeremy Corbyn. There's a president in the United States and it's not Bernie Sanders. So I'm interested if, if after those defeats, semi-defeats, uh, we, we were still confident about the prospects of electoral politics to be the can galvanizing force. Can I add something to that, which is you might argue that at the national level, Corbyn and Sanders failed, but in certain locales in the US, like in certain states, in certain cities, uh, progressives, primarily through like the Democratic Socialists, right, the DSA, they made a lot of gains. I mean, they sent people to Congress. So bringing it to South Africa, could it be that the ANC dominates at a national level, but that there are certain cities, certain provinces, 
certain towns that you could, if you link this kind of people's local conditions to a sort of policy agenda, that you could win elect, that you could make an elect. If, if, if elections is the thing, as now points out, it's worthy to pursue them. If you cannot, if the ANC will win the national elections, are there other ways that you could do it at another level? And I just want to add this quickly. The EFF, which I've understood, you know, we talk, we're mentioning, and I know Tasneem's worked on the EFF, but the EFF has done that for better or worse in very smart ways, like the way they tried to take over Joburg, the way they've tried to take over uh, Chuane, sorry, Pretoria, and a, a couple of other towns. Uh, the way that they play certain roles in certain provinces, for better or worse, they're showing at least that some of that is possible. I mean, is that is that a valid argument? Who should answer that? Mazabuka speaking, but he's on mute. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Sorry for that. Um, I think it's possible at local levels. If you look at a place like uh, Gravestown, Makanda, where the unemployed people's movement is quite uh, well organized. However, uh, we have experience where an independent councillor on the left from the movements in Johannesburg got absorbed uh, by the local government system. So for me, there has to be a number of factors that need to be taken into account. The extent of mass support, uh, the extent of mass accountability, um, and the kind of political uh, base that uh, such localized elections, localized options uh, has to be built around. Uh, I, 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 I think the notion of class struggle elections is, for me, uh, can be validated at that local level uh, with, 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 with some conscious organizing. Uh, because ultimately, at a national level, we still do not have the social base and the activist space that can carry such a class struggle elections perspective. Uh, but it can be built uh, from the ground up. Yeah, so um, if I can just uh, jump in here. I mean, I, I'm not too attached to the Sanders-Corbyn kind of um, examples. I mean, for, for a number of reasons, which I'm not going to get into, but I, I will say that something that is useful to take is um, a, a useful lesson to take is the kind of uh, packaging of uh, your left politics right uh, and I think that's that's important because um, the way uh, the way in which the left here often um, presents its uh, critiques and uh, you know solutions for the problems facing South African society um, are quite difficult to, um, or, or they don't present well. Let, let me put it that way, right? So I think there is something to be said for that. But I mean, that's a that's a minor point. Um, to be perfectly blunt, right? Uh, and I think what I was trying to get to in my first comments were, you know, around the prospects of victory. And I think Niall, Niall mentions this um, in the article. Um, victory, not winning an election, but at least getting... Uh, you know, fit in the door in terms of electoral politics is is an important thing, right? You don't jump into elections without a thought that you will be represented somehow at, at the end of the election, right? And I mean, for one thing, all of these failed left political parties, I think, put put us further back each time, right? And that's that's why I, I wonder whether um, it is right to it, the moment is right. 
Um, and I think for me, if, if, if you look to something like the EFF, um, let's take it across the board, not just on the left, but in terms of generally parties that have um, tried to make it uh, in the last uh, 27 years, whatever it is. Um, the EFF is one of the success stories here, right? Um, and for me, that really comes down to, you know, a number of things, but in terms of just organizing, um, they were able to leverage a base that they came with from, from the NC Youth League, right? Um, and what that meant concretely was that in communities across the country, they had at least one, um, you know, cater of the EFF that came from the Youth League. And I think we underestimate the importance of that just as an organizational um, base and as something from which to, uh, to to broaden your organizing from, right? So there was someone speaking about the EFF um, in various places. So they weren't starting from from zero or trying to recruit from zero. And I think that's, that's for me, a very important part of why um, the EFF was successful, right? Uh, in those first elections, that they were able to leverage that. So, I mean, I think if if we are talking about something like a left party, there's a lot to talk about, but I, I want to bring in like organizing and how you get to a point where you can consider victory. And that might look very, very small um, to start with, um, but it's these like practical sort of things also. And I think, um, you know, sometimes there's an over uh, an underestimation rather of the importance of that in South African politics. And just to get back to the the Corbyn Sanders thing, I think that in those contexts, um, they're not dealing with an ANC, they're not dealing with a, a Congress alliance, and I, I just can't um, emphasize enough how important it is, how important those uh, these structures, these political organizations are to South African political life and any consideration of left-right politics outside of that um, is is going to be mis misguided and is going to be misreading. And the last, last thing I want to say is that it's a it's kind of a question that struck me when uh, when when William um, uh, sent me a message about this this platform and I just uh, it came up in conversation with 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 a friend is we can talk about a left party, but going into the next, uh, let's say, national election, um, what do we think about a right party? And I mean, the right has definitely been um, on, it, it, for me, it's on the rise. Um, I'm not like, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be hysterical about it. Um, so, you know, there's, it's definitely tempered, but it's on the rise. And I think they're mobilizing in ways that the left is not thinking about. Um, and that the left is not doing, right? So I don't want to take us onto a different conversation, but I just to 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 show illustrate my point about where the left is, is that if we had to go into election, um, I think most of us would have to acknowledge that a right-wing party um, would fare better, right? And that comes down to points about organizing um, as well as, you know, other things that I've raised. Earlier. To ask to ask about, oh, oh, sorry, Sean, I think you, can I to ask a quick question about organizing very quickly? I mean, it's basically we need to rebuild our base. And I'm interested to know where do people see the roots towards that? Niall, in your piece, you think that's still in the trade union movement. Uh, which layers of the trade movement is that? Is uh, are we are we encouraged by the South African Federation of Trade Unions, which emerged to contest the the power of Kosatu? Um, what are the routes towards 
rebuilding our base, where is that in, in, in the current social formations? Can, can I answer this? Well, actually, I'm not going to answer. I'm going to answer in a second, but can I just make one quick point on the, on the previous sure. issue? Because I think it's, it's actually really central to this whole question of, the, of a party is this question of, you know, what is, what is the yardstick for success? And in a certain sense, I think it has been a um, confusion around that question has been one of the things deterring the left in South Africa from embarking on the challenge of trying to build a party. Because, there, because there's been, for some reason, this assumption that in order for party building to be worthwhile, the party that we need is going to be a party that's going to rival the ANC, that's going to immediately take power, something along these lines. And I think, in part, that is a legacy of a certain kind of vanguardism that the South African left has inherited. Because one article of this vanguardism was this notion that when you establish a party, it is the party of the working class, definite article, right? This is the party that represents the working class. And it comes from this whole kind of specifically sort of Trotskyist mythology about what the party is, about how it's the incubator for the, um, what was it, the historical experience of the working class. And so part of what came with this is that you're, you're, you're completely embarrassing yourself if you build a political party that doesn't actually become the party that organizes the mass of workers. And I think this has ultimately had an extremely damaging effect because it's meant that until people see the conditions in which that's possible, they're not going to start anything. And that, that has been a disaster because it's meant that we have now lost the opportunity to have actually built something that falls probably far short of what we might want it to be, but still constitutes an enormous step forward for the left in South Africa. If we had a party of the EFF side, size that was a dynamic left party in this country that was getting 8% of the vote and had 10,000 KDA and was bringing 50,000 people out to rallies, we would be leagues ahead of where we are now. If we had a party a quarter that size, we would be that much further ahead. And I think this is something that we really, we really have to realize, even if it's true that the objective conditions we confront at the moment prevent us from building a party capable of contesting power, if we don't do the groundwork to build whatever's possible right now, then whenever the moment comes in which those conditions change, this ruptural moment that we're all waiting for, we're not going to be the ones to gain from it because we're not going to have a vehicle that does that. And for me, this is one of the big lessons from the failure of the democratic left front with which Mazibuko and I were involved with for five years, uh, this effort to try and draw together all these left forces in the period kind of leading up to the NUMSA moment. And, the problem was because of the movementist ideology that I think underpins so much of what we were doing there, we never laid down any real structures. And it meant that at the end of the day, we were left with virtually nothing. Whereas if we had actually done deep organizing instead of this excessive focus on mobilization that's characterized the South African left, things might have turned out a hell of a lot differently. We might have even had the cater to have intervened effectively in uh, the NUMSA moment or whatever when it, when it occurred and maybe taken it in a different direction. So we need to not be unrealistic in terms of what we're aiming for. You know, we need to build what we can. And I think this is also, you know, to answer your question that sparked as well, did these movements succeed? Now, they didn't succeed in building socialism, but holy damn, the left in the UK and the US, you cannot believe the transformation that it has gone through. And I lived through that. When I got to the US, there were maybe... 1,500 organized Marxists in that entire country. Now the DSA is the largest political organization that you have seen since the Communist Party in the 1930s. 
And it is a transformation which, again, it's hard to describe until you've actually seen it. And this is something I think, again, it's, it's for me, why there's a biographical lesson in, in a lot of the politics I'm trying to put forward here is because it is five years of the DLF in which we were left with nothing and four years in which this left has emerged out of nowhere in the US. And, you know, it tells me that we need to be building and we need to be building something like party structures in order for that to happen. Anyone want to comment on that and, and, and go ahead? Yeah. That, but I want to start uh, uh, with that question you were asking William about mm. the social base of of uh, of, 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 of rebuilding. Uh, whilst I think uh, the formal working class at work in the unions is important, but we cannot ignore how weak the trade unions are. Uh, but also structurally, the broad working class has been decomposed uh, by neoliberalism, and there's actually quite a, a bigger set of social forces outside of employment who are fighting in various ways and who need serious left attention in terms of strategy, in terms of taking forward the struggles against mining, the struggles in rural areas, the struggles about access to public goods. I think those are absolutely important and, and a left strategy has to pay attention to that in a significant way. Uh, and Niall is correct here. It cannot just be about narrow movementism. It has to be about those immediate struggles, but also to ensure that uh, the, the leading cadre, the leading activists uh, amongst those struggles begin to grapple with where to uh, of those struggles and, and, and beyond those struggles. Um, I think Niall's point is important about uh, the, 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 the advantage a party brings in terms of, 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 of building uh, structures, of building social presence uh, of 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 an organized left force. I, I I think we don't appreciate that 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 enough. Uh, it's not just the DLF experience, the UF experience, and so on, where there are initiatives to pull forces together, lots of energies spent and and effort put to it. But actually, there's there's nothing to show for it in terms of real results. So going forward, if we are to uh, achieve what Nile is is is, is put, putting forward, we cannot ignore. The the, 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 the the importance of of building a critical layer of activists big enough sophisticated enough with the analysis with the tools to carry the sustained long-term weight of, of of taking that project forward so that's absolutely crucial uh, just name um yeah so i mean i think um just just on the the movements um the movement stuff right which has been uh mentioned a lot and i understand that nile wasn't you know speaking against movements um but i do think it's important to um to draw those uh, sort of lessons on why movements couldn't translate to a uh, border left force um and i mean we've already spoken about you know, it being within the ANC and, and, and or a lot of the supporters of movements um, still being attached to the idea of the ANC or, or, or uh, parts of the Congress Alliance. Um, and I think that's important. Uh, but I mean, in addition to that, and I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish the work that movements and civil society have been doing, but I mean, I do, I do think we need to question the kind of 
popular support um, now that we're dealing with in terms of movements, but also, you know, that many uh, movements are dealing with defensive struggles, right? Uh, and I think this was highlighted in, in the article. And I think the same holds for unions. So, I mean, the, that kind of criticism of, uh, of movements that's that that are not not criticism of movements, but like movements as the best vehicle here, I think holds when it comes to unions too, right? Um, I think unions are engaged in defensive struggles amongst you know lots of other problems in unions that I think have been raised uh, here and and elsewhere. Um, but that kind of you know that engagement in those defensive struggles, I think, really limits the possibilities. But again, I, I think it was mentioned earlier on SAF too and uh well the numsa moment in saftu but again here yeah, i mean i do have to say that i'm not sure what saftu brings um that's new right um that's that is going to lay a new foundation um and i think that saftu came with so much from kosatu that for me it was difficult to see um you know where uh, you know where they would dispense with that, and and what what new forms could come of that in the union space at least, and then obviously that extended to the SRWP and and the party political space. Um, so I mean that's sort of uh, what I want to say there. I know there's some questions here that I'm supposed to address, but I haven't uh, read the comments, so I'll. I'll so I wanted to just I want to ask a quick question, which is Tasneem sort of she's right about the the kind of the emergence of like if you want like a South African the new new right in South Africa, which by the way is not necessarily always white, right? It's the anti-immigrant put South Africa first type politics. Some of it you might even see it in the ANC, you might see some of it in the EFF. So what I'm curious about then in that and 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 to your point, Tasneem, about movements why one movement not translating to a broader left force i'm i'm always struck now in south africa why for example there isn't say a a mass movement that's building around say vaccines like access to vaccines like in the same way that there was a mass movement that built around uh, access to aids drugs or why there isn't a mass movement that builds around police brutality or police killings i mean i know in south africa people get also riled up by how uh the American Police Act and the reactions that people build movements around it here. Why? Why is it that that's not, for example, the basis? If if the left has to become creative, and and to Now's point, like in terms of like, this is the golden rule or the or the or the the verse and chapter, and you're presented with these opportunities that clearly point to these inequalities, to these you know, uh, what do you call it? Like the, these spaces in which you can you can build movements and organize people around. Why hasn't that happened in South, sorry, in South Africa? Can, can I just uh, quickly say that I think, um, and this kind of goes to to your point, Sean, but or your question, but I think also we, we need to recognize that when movements do actively and openly oppose the ANC and start playing in that space, that they face, uh, you know, violence and repression and harassment of all kinds. Um, and I think that's, you know that's something to keep in mind, um, but it did also strike me um, when Tokozi Simtumba, for example, was um, murdered by the police. Uh, why we couldn't um, 
uh, or why there wasn't any serious mobilization around that. And I mean, even now there's a sort of nascent campaign around something like the Universal Basic Income Grant, and, and that's been around for a while, but there is a new campaign around that. And it is a, uh, a question in terms of why none of that takes off. Um, and I think there are different reasons, but there's definitely, it definitely has something for me to do with the really defensive nature of these uh, the struggles that that are ongoing and just a general sort of fatigue with these issue based um like like things that get taken up by by movements and if you look at the student movement for example there are now um efforts to uh and there have been efforts to bring together like broader working class politics the unions and so on and the student movement um, but I think there's real difficulty with where that energy and impetus comes from um, and the general like fatigue. It's the same people, right? Um, and I think it's something that we need to we need to deal with is that when we when we talk about left politics, when you have these new coalitions, um, the C19 People's Coalition, for example, and these new alliances, it's the same people, it's the same faces, it's the same organizations. So, I mean, I, I, that obviously will lead to problems of fatigue and difficulties with organizing and difficulties with bringing up new um, ways of, of organizing, new ways of doing politics, right? Um, and uh, like ultimately, and this sounds maybe broad and, and really flimsy, but um, it, it does come down to how on the left you capture the popular imagination and how you build a new political imagination about what, what where South Africa can go, right? Um, and I think the left broadly has really, really struggled to um, sort of do that uh, that work, that um, popular political uh, work. So, I mean, it's a roundabout way of speaking to, to Sean's um, question. So if I got an idea, I mean, I think the thing Sean's asking is uh, an enormously important you know, question for the left. And indeed, it's a, I think it's a gigantic sociological puzzle, as I think a lot of people have sensed in South Africa, is why we haven't had anything like a kind of Tahir Square kind of moment in this country when this has been happening seemingly so frequently, so many different places around the world. And uh, when there are so many indexes that would seem to make South Africa so ripe for that kind of movement, you know, the neoliberalism, the degree of social deprivation, the inequality, et cetera. So I think it's a puzzle that I don't think yet has a firm answer, and I hope somebody does a dissertation on this uh, sometime soon. I, if I could venture a couple points, I think um, two of them are this. W one is that um, these kind of mass struggles have emerged in context of social crises. In South Africa, we face a difficult condition where we're in a permanent situation of crisis, and in which we've had punctuated moments of crisis within that. But there's a potential that essentially this permanent condition of crisis has built up a certain resilience in the population. But they're so used to dealing with these extreme conditions of deprivation and there are all the kind of institutions and survival networks and whatever sprung up around it that every time you have a new economic crisis and we lose another you know, 700,000 jobs, it doesn't generate the same kind of social um, upsurge because there's an extent to which you know, this, is, this is a marginal change in conditions of extreme depredation for most of the population. The second thing is that I think part of it has to do with ANC dominance in this country. Um, part of it has to do with the fact that uh, there are so many people still articulated within ANC politics 
that the base for that kind of uprising doesn't exist in the same way. What's driven it in so many other places is this complete rejection of the political class. Because the ANC is still a, such a factor in, in people's lives, I, I think it's less easy for that to be the outcome when you have these moments of social crisis. And instead what we have is this kind of slow burning, like constant bubbling up, social fermentation, you know, rolling service delivery protests, etc. Uh, that often are kind of contained within ANC structures. And so this is you know, important, I think, is relevance for the questions that we're asking here, because again, so much of left strategy or independent left strategy for the last 25 years in this country is hinged on awaiting this ruptural moment, this Tunisia moment, as Maletzi and Becky called it. But that simply hasn't happened. The conditions for it have not existed. And, and it's one more reason why I think we can't place all our bets on it. It's going to happen, I think, at some point. It's going to happen, I think, particularly when uh, there's a crisis within the ANC, when its own base starts to fall apart. That's when you'll start to see something like this happen. Um, but we need to be prepared for that moment. And we can't wait for that moment to do the work for us. If we're not prepared, then that moment's not going to get us to where we want it, when we, where we want it to get us to. Mazibuko, you're on mute, Keda. My apologies. I agree with both Naya and Tasnim uh, in response to Sean's question about why uh, we're not succeeding to build mass movements around such concrete issues, which are real. Uh, there's one reason I want to add. Uh, the right is better organized. Religious essentialism, cultural essentialism, uh, even uh, to the point of uh, being ethnic and tribal about it. And it's better inserted into the state so they can, they can get the food parcels and pray over those food persons. I can get the local chief and, and build some tribal identity around the crisis of social, of, 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 of quality service delivery for, for, for lack of a better phrase. But that's, that, that's the one thing I want, I, I, I want to add. Uh, I, 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 unfortunately, I have to step off. I just want to put forward one concluding remark. Um, whilst Niall has put forward quite a, a, a provocative and useful document, uh, I think uh, it should be a mistake, though, uh, to go on in, into a rush of now starting a left party process. I think there's still quite a lot of work to do uh, in terms of uh, this reflection that we have to undertake. But what I like and what Niall has put forward is the need uh, to build in a way where there's actually uh, 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 clear evidence of, 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 of what, what we can harvest down the road in a way that can respond effectively to political opportunities and moments that can arise going forward. But for me, uh, that has to be thought through in a very careful way as to how you do that. I think that's that's exactly the right moment for, for us to end. Um, should have known that if you put a bunch of, of left-wingers in the room, one thing they won't be able to do is agree. But I think one thing that I think has come away from this that everyone agrees on is that we're going to have to fight real soon. We're going to have to fight very hard. Um, and I think I'm, I'm encouraged by how much conversation is already starting to brew with this provocation from now. I mean, there's tons of comments that everyone has submitted. I wish we could have gone to all of them, but I think this is, this is a, uh, an impetus to take the conversations elsewhere. Um, and I look forward to seeing, how those develop, but just wanted to extend my deepest gratitude to Niall, Mazibuko, and Tasneem for, for joining us today. I think this is 
this is definitely going to be an ongoing conversation. And thank you very much to you, our watchers, for joining and participating and adding your inputs. Apologies, we couldn't get to all of them, but by no means is this discussion end here. And thanks, Sean Jacobs, who had to run off, as well as Antoinette Engel, our wonderful producer. And we'll see you next week, as always, and enjoy the rest of your evening. Bye-bye.